Well, thank you all for being here. It's a very special evening for me. <clears throat> it's the 22nd of December, uh, one of the shortest nights of the year. And we tend to do a little bit of inward turning this time of year. <clears throat> and in particular for me, this is a time of letting go of the activity, the performance, the productivity, and being a little bit more contemplative. So the talk I'd like to give this evening is in that vein. <clears throat> and I'd like to start by remembering the story that comes from the, the Christian tradition about the three magi. About this time of year, according to the story that unfolds in the gospel according to Matthew, three wise men came from the east to Bethlehem. And they didn't know that they were going to Bethlehem. All they knew when they started was that there was uh, a reason for them to go. And they were, uh, as it says, following a star. And when they got into the region of Bethlehem, they actually checked in with King Herod first. He was the, the well-known head guy in that area. And they said that they were looking for the newborn king. And Herod had heard of a prophecy. And uh, so he sent them to Bethlehem. <clears throat> and he said before they left, he said, be sure to come back and tell me that you found this newborn king because I want to know about this. And he kind of let on that he wanted to worship this newborn king. So the three magi <clears throat> went to Bethlehem and in, indeed found the Christ child and brought him presents. We actually don't know that there were three. The story says that there were three presents. And so we've kind of assumed that since there were three presents, there were three of the Magi. The name Magi actually comes from the same root as magic. So we got the word magic from uh, ancient Persian. Persian. And uh, the Magi are the uh, embodiment of the magic. Well, they received a dream that said, don't go back to Herod, because if you go back to Herod, bad things can happen. So they went directly back to their homes. <clears throat> and so Herod heard that they'd gone back to their homes. And according to the story, he sent his emissaries to Bethlehem and they found every newborn male child and killed that child. And so in that way, he hoped that he would eliminate any competition from this newborn king. So that's a quick summary of the three magi, the story. I think it's a, an interesting illustration of what we seek at this time of year. When it's dark and it's cold and when we're left to our own devices, um, we would like to have someone come, some wise person come, and it would be wonderful to have some presence, three presence, and to know that there is a king, that maybe the king is 
not <coughs> fully present now, but that, that if we just wait, that this king will come and he'll release us from our bondage. And so I, th- I think it's a wonderful story. Uh, it, it, it touches that yearning that we all have to have an outer solution to our problems in life. <coughs> well, we know from our study of Buddhist teachings and other teachings of wise people that our hope for outer solutions may be in vain. That outer solutions have an impermanent quality to them. And that in fact, everything in life, if we really look carefully at it, isn't permanent, isn't reliable in the sense that we'd like to have something be always with us. The teachings of the Buddha that have come from us from 2,500 years ago have been presented in um, sort of five major packages. One of those packages is one that I'd like to share with you this evening. And it's the package that is called the numerical uh, collections. And in the numerical collections is a presentation of three wise characteristics. They're not wise men bearing wise gifts, but they're wise characteristics. They're the nature of our lives put in a way that if we remember them, we receive inner gifts, not outer gifts. The three characteristics are impermanence. Impermanence being that quality of life that we can pretty much always rely on. So it's kind of like that old joke about the one thing you can rely on is change. That's uh, It was noticed at least 2,500 years ago that there's really nothing to rely on except change. So impermanence is one of the three characteristics. We can notice impermanence by looking at really anything. This building is a a beautiful resource for us and it provides us lots of um, opportunity for having gatherings being together, having our collection of spiritual friends and Sangha members. And yet we know that some years down the road, this building will change. And eventually it'll go away. There uh, is this urge to build something impermanent, I mean permanent, uh, to keep it always with us. But even those things that we care about the most are going to change. One of my favorite teachers is Eric Kolbig. He comes to speak to us maybe once every other year, once a year. And Eric uh, offered a wedding ceremony for some friends of his. And the ceremony started by saying, I hope that we all remember 
that this union will change. We care very much for the sacredness of the married state of people that pledge their lives together and wish to stay together and work together. And yet we know that this union will change either um, by people changing their hearts or by sickness, illness, and death. And so the thing to rely on in this union then, as he reminded us, was the inner quality, the inner quality of seeking that um, peace, that happiness that comes when we're open to our lives, to our true nature. So impermanence is one of those things that is kind of easy to accept, and yet it's hard to live. It's hard to live in a way that we acknowledge everything will change. Our bodies will change. Our friends will change. Our business will change. All of those things that we kind of learned as children that we could rely on have probably changed already. And if they haven't, they will soon. The arrival of the three magic wise men with their wonderful gifts. Um, wouldn't it be nice if we could just depend on that as the days come to the dark time of the year? And yet we can't. So the teachings <coughs> of the Buddha are impermanence is a characteristic that we can rely on. If we depend on permanence, in other words, if we cannot open our hearts to the impermanence that life brings, then we arrive at the second characteristic, which is unsatisfactoriness or suffering. In the words of the ancient language, the Pali language, which the, uh, the uh, Theravadan tradition the Theravadan canon has been preserved, dukkha. And the Pali word for impermanence is anicca. So unless we embrace anicca, accepting the impermanence of life as it is, we will experience dukkha or suffering or unsatisfactoriness. The third major characteristic is called no-self in English or non-self. It comes from a teaching that was very popular at the uh, 2,500 years ago when the Buddha was teaching and presenting his thoughts. And <clears throat> the concept was anatta or um, the uh, absence of an Atman. You may have heard of the word Atman. Atman is a word that comes uh, from the ancient uh, traditions that were actually old at the time of the Buddha. Teachings about 4,000 years ago taught that there was in each of us something permanent, unchangeable, that carried on so that even though our lives were in flux, 
and our bodies died, uh, that there was an Atman or a soul. And so this continuity has been brought along by many spiritual traditions, uh, Christian concept of soul, this unchanging quality that is with us that we can kind of depend on and rely on. And through his investigations of life as it is, the Buddha and the teachings that have come from him tell us that, no, this isn't the case, that in fact, we don't have a part to ourselves that is permanent and unchangeable. And in fact, if we really get to know ourselves, we're more like a verb than a noun. We're more like a process than an object. Things come to us, we deal with them, we change. New things come to us, we deal with them, we change. And even though we kind of would like to think that there's something permanent in there, that there's kind of an usness that is immutable and changes, that the deeper we look and the more careful we look, the more we realize that we're always subject to conditions and causes. So we have the body that we do because we happen to be connected with the parents that we had and we have done with it what we've done because we learned along the way. So the three characteristics at a time of darkness, at a time of the, the long nights can be unsettling especially when we think about how nice it would be to have three wise men show up with gifts. And when we look deeply at the teachings that have come from us down through the ages, the tradition that was begun 2,500 years ago from the Buddha, we have these three characteristics. My thought about them is that they can be unsettling and yet just by virtue of being unsettling that they bring their gifts, that they catch us, they jar us, they shake us, they force us to realize our true nature. I'd like to share (coughs) some thoughts that came from Jack Cornfield. Jack is one of the founders of the Spirit Rock community, also the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. The two sites in the United States that are sort of um, the, the coming of new Western Theravadan Buddhism, the way of the elders. And Jack was being interviewed <coughs> about the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama had come and visited Spirit Rock where Jack is a teacher. And the reporter asked Jack, uh, you know, what was the essence of the Dalai Lama's visit? So Jack told a story. He said, I'll tell you a story. When the Dalai Lama was asked 
about his book, The Art of Happiness, the person said, this book was on the bestseller list for two years. Could you please tell me and all the people that I know about the happiest moment in your life? You've written the book. Yeah, tell me about the happiest moment of your life. And the Jack says, the Dalai Lama smiled and said, I think now. Isn't that wonderful that to capture that we are happy now? Even in the midst of being in the dark time of the year, with all of the difficulties that our lives present to us, the news, our national situation, maybe we have a health challenge, uh, maybe our family is in turmoil in some way, struggling. As human beings, we always are looking for ways to improve. So in the midst of this, to realize <laughs> that we are happy, that we have the ability to be happy really anywhere we are, in any condition that we are. And so that gift that the wise can give us has already been delivered. It's already here. We don't have to look farther than just simply our own bodies noticed carefully and noticed with a gentle awareness. So as we practice at this center and others, we practice a mindfulness, a an ability to capture who we are in essence. To let go of what people have called the, the childish crutches of life, the, the childish uh, longings and yearnings. To notice them, it's not wrong to have yearn for a wise man and gifts. It's not wrong at all. But to notice this yearning and to realize that the gifts already were here, that we're, we're not waiting. We don't need to wait. We don't need to go anywhere. We don't need to be anything. We already are. I'm going to read a poem by Stanley Kunitz. Stanley Kunitz was the uh, poet laureate of the United States for several years recently. <coughs> When I look behind as I am compelled to look, before I can gather strength to proceed on my way, I see the milestones dwindling toward the horizon and the slow fires trailing from the abandoned campsites over which scavenger angels wheel on heavenly wings. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections, and my tribe is scattered. How shall the heart be reconciled to its feast of losses? In a rising wind, the magic dust of my friends, those who fell along the way, bitterly stings my face. Yet I turn, I turn, exulting somewhat, 
with my will intact to go wherever I need to go. And every stone on the road precious to me in my darkest night when the moon is covered and I roam through the wreckage of a nimbus clouded voice. The voice says, live, live in the oneness, live in the days, live in your heart. No doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. I am not done with my changes. So I love that image of looking back and noticing the campfires, the campfires receding. As we look back at our lives, there were times when we, we built a campfire. We, we camped. We had a relationship that mat, <clears throat> mattered to us. We had a, a, a business. We had a home. We had a child. We had an idea. All of these things. <clears throat> and we look back and we see the campfires dwindling as we move on. And so that can be frightening, especially in the dark time of the year when the moon is clouded. And yet he says, I turn, I turn, exulting somewhat with my will intact to go on wherever I need to go and every stone on the road precious to me. So we have that as a gift, this time in the dark time of the year. We can notice the campfires dwindling, but then we can turn and we know that our will is intact, that our happiness is just a brief awareness, a gentle touch away, and that we can go, we can do that which we need to do. And that we can do so no matter how dark or how cold the outside is. We can do it with a sense of gratitude and warmth and quality. So the wise men won't come this Christmas, I hesitate to say, because we'd all like to have the wise men come. But we have three wise characteristics that are with us and they can bring us kind of relentlessly to ourselves. We can think that material things will give us permanent happiness or we can look for experiences that will provide us our sought-after essence or quality in life. And yet these three characteristics are always there. They're always operating. And so whatever we fix on as being permanent, it will change. And it will bring us suffering as long as we hold to that permanence. Whatever we fix on as our self will change. We like to think of ourselves as having an identity, uh, <clears throat> uh, something that we could, as they say, take to the bank. You know, 
if you go to Vassar and you get a bachelor's degree, you can take that to the bank. You know, you'll always have that. Um, and what we don't realize is that the the real coin of the realm isn't at our bank. The real coin of the realm is inside us. It's that that ability to touch ourselves and to know that we're okay, that our will is intact, and that we can do what we need to do. I brought a gift for everybody tonight. <clears throat> the gift is a sheet of paper, and it's called the Katavantu Sutta. The Katavantu Sutta is about what's called topics of conversation. Uh, a little bit of a background. <clears throat> the Buddha, uh, we have very clear historical evidence that a man did exist and did teach uh, in the Ganges Valley in India about 2,500 years ago and did bring some amazing teachings, the three characteristics being one, uh, possibly the greatest example of amazing teachings, things that were really revolutionary. Those teachings were passed orally for about two or 300 years and then finally written down. And when they were written down, uh, there was what they call the, the third conference or third gathering um, about two or three hundred before the Christian era, BCE. And <clears throat> by that time, there were 30 or 40 different schools that had adopted the teachings and were convinced that their version of the teachings were the right teachings. And so this gathering was to say, okay, let's all get together and let's kind of consolidate our teachings. And so out of that were written down now what we think of as the Pali Canon, the way of the elders. And so we have documentary evidence for what was passed orally for two or three hundred years and then written down. The Katavatu Sutta came from what they call a, a, a part of the teachings, the Anguttara Nikaya. The Anguttara Nikaya are collections of teachings that have numbers associated with them. So, um, and they start with the number one and go through the number 11. And so, <clears throat> if you think of three characteristics, you can go to the Anguttara Nikaya, Nikaya find all of the, the things that were gathered together in threes, and you can find the teachings about the three characteristics. And in fact, I brought a little of that tonight, and I'm just going to take a second to um, read you what it says. Uh, let's see. The teachings um, were passed orally and they were about gatherings of people. And oftentimes the teachings were presented in a direct way and then illustrations were given. 
So the two illustrations that were used to talk about impermanence, suffering, and no self, or anicca, dukkha, and anatta, were the chariot and the forest. <clears throat> the example in the, of the chariot and the forest explain the relationship between what we call personal experience, components of personal experience. So the explanation is that the chariot, the word chariot is really just a convenient name for a collection of parts that is assembled in a particular way. If you think about it, the wheels aren't the chariot. The seat isn't the chariot. The axle isn't the chariot. <clears throat> Similarly, an individual tree is not a forest. There are no number of trees that particularly create a forest. So there are individual trees in the forest. The forest is made up of individuals. But if you remove one individual, does, it, does the forest remain? What is it that gives the forest its identity? What is it that gives the chariot its identity? So our belief is <clears throat> that we know what we say when we say chariot. But if we look a little bit closer, we see that it's an assemblage. And in that same way, we think we know what we say when we say us, me. I think of myself as being married, having a wife, uh, having two children, two stepchildren, uh, serving various companies in various ways in my business, doing activities, driving a certain kind of car. I think of these things as being me. But it's just like the chariot. No one of those things is me. Nor is my body me, nor are my ways of thinking me, because they change all the time. So to remind people of what really counts and what is important, the Buddha used lists. And so a lot of the teachings are in the form of lists. And the present that I'm going to give you tonight is a list. Uh, it's called Topics of Controversial Conversation. And so <clears throat> he was talking with people that were present to receive a teaching. And they said, can you tell us really what we need to focus on? And so he said, okay, I'll make it very clear what are the helpful things to focus on and what are the unhelpful things to focus on. The helpful things, if you focus on them, will lead to liberation. They will lead to happiness and a sense of who you really are. And the unhelpful things to speak about are things that will distract you, lead you astray. So the list 
for unhelpful topics of conversation is kings, and by that we can interpret that using our modern understanding as anybody that thinks of themself in a kingly way or a uh, high established way. Ministers of state. So even back 2,500 years ago, it was clear that talking about ministers of state may not result in liberation. Armies, tragedies, battles, food and drink. So now we're starting to think, holy cow, what else can you talk about? <laughs> Clothing, furniture, relatives, <coughs> vehicles, vehicles. So even then, chariots. I can see guys sitting around, you know, sitting around the campfire and talking about the chariot. You, know? you seen that hot new chariot? <coughs> Villages, towns and cities, women and heroes. The gossip of the street, tales of curiosity, talks of dead people, the creation of the world and of the sea, and talk of whether things exist or not. So this is, it's arresting in a way to think that as we... <coughs> lead our lives, we, we kind of take so many of these things for granted as good topics of conversation. Kind of think about, think about your relatives, think about and so forth. And the reminder of the teachings is that these things may not lead to our liberation. So it's not that we have to avoid uh, thinking of them or talking about them, but just to be aware that the time and effort that we spend thinking about them and dealing with them in our minds and our hearts may not lead to our liberation. So conversely, these are the ten topics of conversation that do lead to liberation. So we'll see if you agree with these. Having few wants. Contentment. Seclusion, not getting entangled, arousing persistence, virtue, concentration, discernment, release, and the knowledge and vision of our release living this life. So I put these together on the list. At the bottom of the list is the translation of the actual words and then I've extracted the words and put and listed them above. And I think over there by the door is a stack of these readings. There they are. So I encourage you to stop and pick one. Actually, why not, let's just hang on to them. We'll just 
as people go out, they can take one. <clears throat> and I offer these. The, these have that same quality of uh, our, our familiar lives, our usual lives, don't really ring true according to this list. And so this is a chance for us to be a little bit more aware of our speech, a little bit more aware of our thinking. Part of the teachings say that every thought counts, every word counts. And so as we give ourselves to that which we are to do, we need to be aware of every thought and every word. And does it lead to our liberation? Does it lead to others' liberation? So we're going to be getting together with relatives and friends over the next few days and week, maybe, and having a chance to touch in with their lives and um, let them know about our lives. And I just invite us to use that extra bit of mindfulness to be aware, are we sharing with these people in a way that leads to our liberation and to their liberation? Are we spacious enough in the way that we are addressing them and the way that we're thinking about them, the way that we're thinking about ourselves? So it's a little bit of a stretch. So the three characteristics lead to freedom, even though they present a challenge to us. The impermanence that leads to suffering and the non-existence of a permanent self. If we can maintain a spaciousness to hold these, to relate to our lives in that kind of way, then we open less suffering to ourselves, we open liberation to ourselves. The three characteristics are here to give us ourselves. Just as when we go to 24-hour fitness and we work out our physical body, the three characteristics are a workout for what you might call our true nature body, that part of ourselves that lives independent of who we may identify with. The identity problem is one that we have right from the beginning. We're, we're taught as young children, you know, know who you are and uh, stand up for yourself and so on. And to become Buddhists or to follow Buddhist teachings and then find that we really haven't been addressing anything permanent or solid can be unsettling. And yet I think that the example of knowing 
that the happiest moment of our life is now gives us that freedom. It gives us that ability. We can remind ourselves that there's nothing to wait for. There's nowhere to go. And there's no one to be. Nothing to wait for. Nowhere to go and no one to be. The gift is already here. In this very moment, we have the ability to be fully, spaciously aware and find our true freedom and our true happiness. So that's a little bit about the mindful qualities that we can use in this dark time of the year. And so I'd like to follow a tradition that we have, and that is that on Thursday evenings, it's a chance for those of us that would like to, to get in touch with each other just a little bit, hear about each other's practice a little bit. So I'd like to um, have about a two-minute break. Those of you that need to go, would like to go, Please do so now, and I wish you the most wonderful holiday season and wish you many happy returns here in the new year. Those that would like to stay around, I'd encourage you to come up a little closer, and then uh, we'll just have a little bit of interactive dialogue before we go. So thank you all very much, and if you can stay, I would like to encourage you to do so. Please pick up a copy of the helpful and not helpful topics of conversation, and have a wonderful year as you go forward being mindful and uh, uh, incorporating the wisdom of the three characteristics. Those of you that can stay, please come on up and join. So, someone always asking for something more. This is great. Could we make copies of the groups? Oh, Oh, yeah. You know what? Tell you what, I have it in this one. If you give me an email address. The uh, question just came up about a copy of the Kunz poetry, Kunitz poetry. If you guys are interested in having a copy of this, if you give me your email address, I'll be glad to send you a copy of it. I only have one copy tonight. I didn't think to bring more. Oh, that's a good. I'll put it out on the. I'll put it out on the form. Do you get the inside form? Yeah. Yeah. But then you'd have to write it. Oh, that's okay. I have it. I have it all written out. So I'll put it. I'll put it on the form tomorrow. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Okay, so thank you all for staying, and I'd like, to, I'd like to start by just reading a little bit of 
Gill's book, the Dhammapada. This is the new translation that Gill has provided. And there's a part to it I think is particularly relevant to what we were talking about this evening. And then I'll ask you a question about it. It's from a chapter called The Sage. And it says, One who drinks in the Dharma sleeps happily with a clear mind. The sage always delights in the Dharma, taught by the noble ones. As solid mass of rock is not moved by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise or blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. Various people always let go. They don't prattle about pleasures and desires, touched by happiness and then by suffering. The sage shows no sign of being elated or depressed. So it's that image again of in the midst of all that's happening, the sage is the one that is unmoved, just like the rock is not moved by the wind, or is deep and clear like the lake is deep and clear. So I'd like to invite us to think about our practice, uh, our meditation, our experience of our studies, and let's just share with each other that which allows us to be unmoved in our knowing or to be deep and clear like the lake, spacious. What is it that has helped us? And here I'm thinking about an inspiration, something that inspired us, an experience we may have that has given us this sense of depth and quality of who we really are. And so this is our chance and one of the darkest nights of the year. And let's just hear a little bit from each other. What is it that has inspired us to, to have that depth, that spaciousness? to know who we really are, to stay with who we really are in the midst of all the distractions. So who will share something that inspired them? Yeah, please. Um, the thing is that, that has worked for me lately is um, coming back to my body. It's it's I will tend to be, I can be very reactive, I can be very elated, I can be be very negatively reactive. And um, I'm in the uh, Gil Sadipatana group that meets once a month on, on a Friday. And he's been having us do body work and come back to our bodies and back to our bodies and back to our bodies. And it, it has just given me so much more perspective is that sometimes I won't even be in my body. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like, well, or where do I feel this? And there's a gathering that happens that it's like, oh, okay, there I am. You know, it, or it's, I've got some sort of a center or some sort of not overreaction, some place of equanimity by finding and refinding my body throughout the day or when I notice when things get extreme, maybe I'll start running my head, and I take a look at where my body is. And it's just 
it, it's just been very productive. Well, for instance, say you're you're um, <coughs> you're really agitated, mm -hmm. that you, that you're in extreme distress. Mm -hmm. I'll just stop and just feel. Um, I'll breathe. Sometimes it, 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 sometimes I'll just breathe fully. I'll fully feel my the whole breath body. But sometimes I'll feel where that is. It's like say I'm anxious or say I'm crippled with anxiety. I'll feel it here. It's like, oh, that's where it is. All my energy is way up here. And I'm all like this. And that allows me to loosen that. And it allows me to, to re-enter my body. Good sharing. Thanks. Yeah, there's a microphone here. <coughs> For me, it's like um, we are all from one source. We are not different from each other. We all, even the whole universe, is yearning for same thing. The light and the source is the same. And then um, once I was, I mean, back a few years ago, I was meditating, and then suddenly I felt this oneness with everything and everybody, and, and uh, completely forgot my form, my body. And then it came to my mind that maybe I heard it before, but it just came to my mind that we are all like, like a, an ocean that, and then from that water, the ocean, we are in different form of cup or form. One is black, one is white, one is brown, short, tall, but the content is the same ocean. And it's absolutely not different from, the form is different. The form, maybe, I don't want to look at it as a negative because it's acceptance, it's surrounding that we are not separate by these forms. We are that content, which is universe and ocean. Where in your life do you experience that oneness? Um, when I started um, looking at my life, um, working hard at high tech and uh, looking for some and I had it all the stock market was going well <laughs> high tech was doing fine in Silicon Valley I was part of it 
and then I was empty. And when I started seeking, then I felt like I shouldn't seek, I just should be present. And for a while it was what to be present with. I was very confused. What, what is the presence? And then every time when I think about this oneness with everybody, we all want love, attention, comfort, and contentment, and all, that, all those good things, happiness, and uh, I would say peace. And uh, it's that ocean we all all want. We must separate. And then I feel really peaceful. Thanks for sharing. Anybody else? Words of inspiration in the darkest night or the second darkest night of the year. for being here too. By the way, uh, I should have asked us to use names because this is a chance for us to remember names. So let's start back here. I'm Maureen. Maureen. Mary. Mary. Niku. Niku. Carol. Carol. Who's next? Okay. Well, this has been a lovely sharing. I appreciate everybody gathering together. I think that uh, having a spiritual community, having a family of people uh, who we 
care about, whose lives we know we can trust because they care about their life. I think it's so valuable. And so I thank you for the care that you give to your life and the care that you give to those lives that depend on you. It makes the world a safer place, a warmer place. And as the solstice comes and goes, that's our focus. We want to have lives that lead to safety, to liberation. All of the presence, all of the commercialism, the consumerism and so forth, you know, it's there, it's present, it's very vital in some ways. Uh, it brings us good things. And yet, in the dark time of the year, it's so important to remember who we truly are. We are the ability to do the good thing next. So if there is something that we could identify that is unchanging about ourselves, it is that ability to see the next good thing and to do the next good thing. And that'll change, it's impermanent, but we always have it. So I thank you all very much for coming tonight and I wish you the absolute best as you look for the next good thing in your life. Be well.